Welcome. We are so glad to have you with us if you're here in person. Uh, it's it's a, a joy to see faces and to be able to, uh, even if they're slightly covered, to be able to see faces and gather together. So um, thank you for joining us. If this is your first time, a big welcome as well. Um, if you're watching online, we're so grateful that you're joining us in that way as well or watching it live or later. Uh, we hope that this service will be uh, a blessing to you and will encourage you in your walk with Christ. Let's begin this service uh, with a call to worship, and it's from Psalm 121, and it says this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who sleeps, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. As we sing in this time of great uncertainty and challenges and new questions and things we face every day, it, it sometimes can be hard to believe that God is in control and that he is our help, but that's the truth that we believe and that we try to press into by faith in these times of worship. So join with me as we sing. Thy mercy, thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affection and bound my soul fast. Without, without thy sweet mercy I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair, but through thy free goodness my spirit revived, and he that first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy, thy mercy is more than a match for my heart which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep in the mercy of the mercy I found. Great Father, great Father of mercy, thy goodness I own covenant love of thy crucified son all praise to the spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness my all praise all praise to the spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine Sing Jesus pays it all. And I hear the Savior say, 
Thy strength indeed is small, and child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. And Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Lord, now, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spot and melt this heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when, and when before the throne I stand in Him complete and Jesus died my soul to save my lips shall still repeat and jesus paid it all all to him i owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white he washed he washed it white as snow. He washed, he washed it white as snow. Sing, oh, praise. And oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raises life up from the dead oh praise the one who paid my debt and raises life up from the dead oh praise the one who paid my debt and raises life up from the dead oh praise the one who paid my debt paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow Good to be able to come before the Lord together. And as we come before him to bring our confession, not in fear or in anxiety, but in confidence, 
knowing that as we name exactly what we are dealing with and exactly who we are, that that is exactly where he loves to meet us. So please join with me in our confession of sin. And then we'll take a moment afterwards as well just to consider for each of us personally and individually um, what we might bring before the Lord in confession, before the assurance of pardoning grace. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we live in a frightening world. In our fear, we often forget that you are powerful and loving and are devoted to your children. When we hear of wars and terrorists, we are tempted to turn to politicians to rescue us, and we panic despairingly if we feel we can't trust them. When we face with illness and mortality, we turn to doctors, diets, and frenetic health strategies in order to avoid the inevitable. When friendships fail and relationships disappoint us, we struggle with bitterness, anger, and depression because we look to other weak sinners to find comfort and meaning in life. When our plans don't work out, we scramble to construct self-salvation strategies in order to calm our fears and give us a measure of confidence and peace. Father, forgive us for forgetting that you love us, for stubbornly laying all our hopes and dreams at the feet of our idols, for despising you when you lovingly interfere with our self-salvation campaigns to rescue us from our pride and self-trust. Thank you for your great patience with weak sinners like us. Help us to remain, remember your promises and to believe them. Amen. hear now the words of the assurance of pardon by God from Psalm 103 verses 8 through 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Please continue to join us in worship. you if you're in person to stand if you feel led to do so lord i come and i confess i'm bowing here i find my rest and without you i fall apart you're the one that guides my heart Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. 
God, I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. A holiness is Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And every hour I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. So teach my song to rise to you. temptation comes my way and when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus and Jesus you're my hope and stay you're my hope and stay Lord I need Lord I need Good afternoon, good morning, if you're watching this tomorrow. <clears throat> My name is Claire Hine, and I'm one of the elders at uh, Trinity Park Church. And <clears throat> I'd like to share with you some of the insights and the deliberation that the elders came through at their retreat in early December. We did have an outdoor retreat on a Friday and Saturday on a very cold and windy uh, weekend. But I tell you, we were very conscious of uh, the environment that we find ourselves in. Of course, we know the pandemic was raging, the election had occurred, and we had no place to call home for our church. Um, and the cultural and the political turmoil as well as the incivility that we've all been witnessing. So we reflected on several questions. The questions were, what's God doing now? Um, how will he rescue us at this point in time? 
What's his plan? Uh, surely we are not abandoned by God at this point in time. And most importantly, we're trying to figure out what is our vision as a church, as the elders might determine it, now in the face of this cultural environment and the financial challenge. Do we need to change directions as a church in, the, in view of all this? <clears throat> well, the answer that we came to was a clear no. We do not need to change directions, and I need to explain that. When each of the elders reviewed why we are a part of Trinity Park Church, we determined that it was because it proclaimed the hope that the world needs to hear, the hope that is in Jesus Christ. It's a hope to broken people in a broken world. And I have to confess, I am broken. I need healing. Now I'll tell you, this is not just religious rhetoric. This is the bottom line for all of us. We are in an imperfect world and we are a messed up people. And in that imperfect world and messed up people, can we work together to serve God in proclaiming his kingdom? That's kind of the, essentially the question that we were trying to deal with. We must be one in Christ with all of our imperfections. Jesus prayed that the church might be one as he and the Father are one. And this is the demand that is placed upon us. We have no choice, that's his prayer. And we are people that Jesus has touched. He set us on a journey to fulfill all the promises that he has given us. Some of those promises are fulfilled partially now, but we will not experience the full fulfillment until we're in heaven with Christ. We are a redemptive community. Now, I just feel I need to unpack those two words, a redemptive community. So let me elaborate on that for a minute. We want to be in Trinity Park Church, a community that touches your life in a way that points you to Jesus Christ as the helper, the healer, the one who will make you whole in whatever challenge you're facing. Jesus Christ is the one that gives us hope for each other and will help us to reach out to our neighbors and to the world. That's his challenge to us, to share the word of God made visible in the life of Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Scriptures that guide us in everything we do as we rely on the Holy Spirit. So our mission statement, slightly revised from the original one is when the church was established, proclaiming Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. Now we all know that at, at Trinity Park Church we have many cultures and nations that are represented here. And we must cross any cultural boundaries that may exist in our midst so that we can become one in Jesus Christ. 
The body of Christ is one. It is not divided. When our focus is on Christ rather than our differences, we are one. When we arrive at our new location on Maynard Drive, whenever that might be, we will find ourselves in a mix of people that are different. So we must find ways of reaching out to those folks in that community with the gospel. And we have to be deliberate in that attempt and in reaching out and sharing our lives with them. And we cannot remain smug in a holy huddle. We have no choice. The reality of this pandemic is they were limited in fulfilling our mandate of becoming the complete body of Christ for every, for, so that every part can fully perform its function. We're limited. We feel alone. People feel alone. How are we going to respond to all the voices that we keep here yelling at us uh, to want us to be whatever, uh, somewhat like the Christian community to be deprogrammed. Some call us to support cultural Marxism, cancel the culture, demonstrate for social change, join our cause, our party. The list is endless of the voices that holler at us. But these voices, most of them, are based on human reasoning. And we know there is a limit to human reasoning. The intelligence of the human mind and body cannot give us enough. We need God. It is inadequate to rest only on what we know. We will never find life-changing needs in, our, in ourselves unless we adhere to what the Word of God has to say to us as interpreted us, is interpreted to us by the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had it right. Repent. Change your direction. Jesus had it right. Repent and believe the gospel. And I want to tell you that if anyone is willing to tell your story openly and vulnerably, you will find that Christ faced the same stuff that you do, the same junk that you do in your life. So if we still believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer that we all are seeking and that the world is seeking, that the nations are seeking. That's whole God's whole redemption plan in this world, and we're a part of it. We must share this good news to apply to any cultural issue in the world because our hope is in this gospel. Our future is in this gospel. That is our vision. But we can't do it alone. We all have a responsibility here to love and care for each other. We cannot let people go on being an island by themselves. We are, going back to the original question, to Cain and Abel, to Cain, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. As elders, we have a responsibility to love and care for you we have organized all of you so that you're on someone, some elders list. That means that we pray for you. We'll call you as we can 
and we want to be we want to care for you we want to find out if your family needs something but you have to help us you have to answer to us you uh, answer us and give us a chance to listen to you uh, we need to do a better job of this as elders so we ask you to pray for us that we might do this we're just merely men trying to do the work of God so please help us in that it's all very difficult in this pandemic time we have to rely on Zoom or FaceTime or the phone or email, and we all know the limitations of that. So we need God's help in this whole process. So no matter how hard we try, we will go do it imperfectly. So please pray for the elders as we try to serve you. We need God's help, and we need your help too. One more thing, I just want to remind you that uh, Richard Sugg, uh, who's been an elder for at least six years, is due to go on sabbatical in April. And so we will be having an election for, uh, we have a, an elder candidate and a deacon candidate. The elder candidate is Mark Young. The deacon candidate is Zach Johnson. And we expect that election will occur in March. Thank you. Please now join me in our pastoral prayer. Lord, my mind and my heart are brought back to the words of the chorus of the song that we just sang. One of the things that I love about Trinity Park is that one of our core values is dependency. And so, Lord, we as your people, even as we consider the vision that Claire just um, clarified for us again of what it means to be your church here in our location, working with the people who are here and serving our community around us. Lord, even here, we bow our knee before you and we cry out, oh, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. You are our one defense. You are our righteousness. So, oh God, how we need you. Lord, we praise you that the life of faith encompasses all of our human experiences. And so as we look ahead towards the future and as we dream with ambition of what we might do as a church, Lord, even there, we bow our knee before you and say, oh, Lord, we need you. Even as we look back over our own personal lives and consider our sins as we did with our confession earlier, Lord, we might bend our knee again and say, oh, Lord, we need you. As we consider the challenges and opportunities that we've been reviewing in our congregational meetings, once again, Lord, we bow our need to you and we say, oh, Lord, we need you. Lord, as we consider our weaknesses, our limps personally, relationally, emotionally, Lord, even physically, as we consider those in our congregation who are struggling with all kinds of just the 
challenges of what it means to be human in, in this life. Lord, we pray for our members who are sick as well. We pray especially in this moment for Aaron Perkins, who has been freshly diagnosed with breast cancer and is concerned about that being spread to parts of her lymph node system. Lord, we pray for patience for her as she waits until Wednesday to find out any more information or treatment plans or anything else in, in this moment as she sits simply with the diagnosis. Oh Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Yet Lord, even as we pray these things, the reason that we bring them before you and the reason that we're able to bring them before you is because we trust the beauty of your love for us. Undeserved, unearned, unjustified, except by Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us. And so, Lord, even there we stand before you and we, we delight to say, oh, Lord, we need you. And we pray that in all of these moments, whether it's in things continuing to come together and unfold the way that we would hoped, or whether it's in um, the brokenness of unanswered questions and clear obstacles waiting before us. Lord, we praise you that as we cry out that we need you, you have already met us with the answer of all of our needs in your son, Jesus Christ. That you did not wait for us to come to you, but that you broke into our story. As we have sung like the best father, The Lord, your light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, that you never shy away from us because of the darkness, but rather it is the darkness which hastens you to us, which quickens your steps, which leads you to pick up your robes and come sprinting down the road to meet us. And so, Lord, we thank you that you love us in these ways. We pray, Lord, that you would give our hearts the vision of your love and an understanding of your love so that it is easy for us to rest in you, so that it is natural for us to come. And it, I confess it even sounds almost silly as I say it out loud, but to throw my arms around your neck and say, I need you. But Lord, that is what we are made for. And that is exactly what you grant us in Jesus Christ. And so as your people, Lord, simultaneously broken and ambitious, simultaneously limping and sprinting and stumbling through this life with a vision of what you can accomplish, not what we can accomplish, Lord, but what you accomplish through us in our efforts. We praise you, Lord, that as we need you, you meet us and you have met us and you will meet us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord God, it is in his name that we pray these things. In his name alone. Amen. Good afternoon, Trinity Park. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8 and 14 through 17. And Saul approved his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered out throughout the, re throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered about went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on him, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, Trinity Park. I'm Corey, senior pastor here. It's good to see you if you're joining for the first time online. Um, whether it's today or tomorrow or whenever you're going to watch this, it's great to have you. It's great to be here in person with some of you as well. So today we're in Acts 8, and we're looking at the story of Philip going into Samaria. It's the story of the church going through great suffering, amazing amounts of suffering that we see here. Um, I just want to highlight a couple of things that were just read for you. Great persecution rose against the church in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen, one of their own leaders, one of their own new deacons. He was stoned. We talked about that last week. They greatly lamented over him. Saul, who is not yet Paul, is ravaging the church, entering house to house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. I want to flash back with you to Acts 1.8, where Jesus said, And you will receive power when my spirit falls upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I bet at that time when the disciples heard Jesus say those words, it was exhilarating to hear Jesus give them this commission, this commission to bring Jesus into their place. I bet it was so exciting. And it was a little daunting to see Jesus leave their midst and ascend into heaven and realize it really was Jesus' plan. It was on them. They were the ones that were called to bring Jesus to the world. At that point in time, they had no idea that Acts 8 would happen. They had no idea. They were excited and they were on board. What a great vision. Let's take the gospel to the world. No idea that they would be sitting here in Acts chapter 8. No idea a persecution would come about because of Stephen, because of the preaching of the gospel. No idea they would have to bury him. No idea that they would have to leave their homes. No idea they would have to leave their jobs. No idea that their kids wouldn't see their friends. And that was how the gospel was going to go to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. 
they faced struggles for the name of Jesus that they never had any clue that they would encounter. And yet their commission that they'd been given was to bring Jesus into their place. They lived for Jesus Christ. This was not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is not an if Jesus, you'll do this for me, then I'll follow you. This is Jesus, you are my life. And whatever you bring me, in whatever circumstances I find myself, even if I feel scattered, and I am scattered, and even if I am scattered into Samaria, into an area, into a people group that I, I loathe, I have been trained from being a child to think less of these people, and it is there that I go. This is the call of Jesus Christ in this moment for the church. And so today we're going to look at two things from this text. We're going to talk about what it means to serve in the kingdom when you're scattered, and we're going to talk about what it means to serve in the kingdom when you're in your Samaria. Serving when you're scattered and serving in your Samaria. So first of all, serving when you're scattered. You know, if you Google serving in my sweet spot, you can find all kinds of really awesome literature written to help you understand who you are, to help you understand how you're gifted, to help you understand how to optimize how God has made you so that you can serve in the unique ways that God has created for you. That is an excellent exercise to go through. We do that here at Trinity Park. Sometimes I've been through all kinds of assessments to learn about how God's made me. You should do that. But the fact of the matter is we don't always just get to serve in our sweet spot. In fact, much of our ministry and much of our lives is not happening when we are in our sweet spot. We are called to serve God in all times, in all places. Often, very often, this is not in our sweet spot. Because at the end of the day, serving Jesus isn't about you. It's not about your personal fulfillment. It's not about you just clicking on all cylinders and having everything that you need lined up. We don't serve God when we have it all together so often, and it's very uncomfortable. We are called to serve God when we are very aware that we do not have it all together, when we are broken, and in fact, that is when God's light often shines through the most. God accomplishes his purposes in situations and in timing we would never choose for ourselves. We learn this from Acts 8. So enter in COVID-19. This is our version of Acts chapter 8. No one expected this. No one expected that here we would be almost a year into a global pandemic, meeting in our seventh worship setting, trying to figure out how we can come together as a church relationally, spiritually, in faith, and financially trust in the Lord for our future. We never thought we would be here. But Jesus knew we would be here. Jesus knew that the mandate that he called us to have as a church would go through COVID-19. He knew it, but we did not know it. You need to look with me what's happening to the church in Acts chapter 8. We looked at verses 1 through 4 already. We see persecution. We see the burying, the lamenting over a brother who has been lost. We see ravaging. I mean, we have not yet experienced what it means to be persecuted like they were experiencing. People are being driven from their homes, driven from relationships, driven from their livelihoods with no plan. No plan. 
no plan, no time. There's no, there's no lead time to make decisions. They are just simply displaced. They had received intense hatred for their goodness and their faithfulness. Sometimes when we're, we find ourselves in a difficult situation, we ask ourselves, did we do something wrong so that we would find ourselves in this hard place? That's not a bad question to ask. But it's often when we are following Jesus faithfully that we find ourselves in the middle of situations that are very difficult, and it happens to be the will of God that we would be here. I'm sure at times they were confused and afraid. They felt out of control. They didn't know what would happen in the future. But because of their identification with Jesus, they are scattered. So scattered is a key word here that describes what is happening in the church. They're scattered, first of all, geographically, all over Palestine and eventually to the ends of the earth. They're scattered personally and emotionally, just like you feel. A lot of you who are at home with your kids, you're working. You know, you got dad over here working, you got mom over here working, you got kids on virtual school, and you're trying to figure it out, and you feel scattered. And you're like, how in the world is God at work in this moment? But the fact is that he is at work, even when we are emotionally scattered. How do most people feel towards God when they're being scattered like this? Well, when we're being scattered, often we can question God. We may not openly say it out loud, but we question a couple of things about God's character. First of all, we ask, God, are you really sovereign? Are you really in control of my life? Are you really, are you really taking an interest in, in in providence and overseeing what is happening in my world. We question God's sovereignty sometimes, and sometimes we also question his love. Well, God, if you are sovereign and this is going on in my life, then explain to me how you could be loving me right now. Since we are products of a modern world, Western and empowered, we feel like we have the right to have everything under control. We have the right to have everything under control, and simultaneously, we should feel sheltered and supported in every moment of our lives. We feel like to be successful in our witness for Jesus, that we have to have our lives under control in a perfect balance of financial, emotional, psychological, and relational health before we begin to follow him. In fact, we tell ourselves things like this, it is because of my put-togetherness in the way that I've figured out how to live my life, that the, the world might see Christ in me. It is the degree to which I have figured things out and applied all these things and I've got everything working out that people will see that I am faithful when so very often, in fact, I would say never <laughs> that is the case. When the world sees Jesus in us, it's not because you figured out how to manage everything just right. The world sees Jesus in us when we are scattered. When, when, the, when we're broken, and all those broken places, we have to recognize that I am broken, the session is broken, the church is broken, every single person. It would be a great exercise for you to say, I am still broken, because that is a fact. You can take a deep breath. Your life has not been completely put back together again. That will happen in glory. One day, it'll all be put back together again. But for now, we are broken. And how does Jesus work? It's through jars of clay. He shines his light. He shines his grace into our lives, into our broken lives. 
And the world sees Christ in a broken people. And that is how the gospel goes out. That is how the gospel goes out through a scattered people. Struggling people, we still struggle with sin. We struggle with financial decisions. We struggle with our kids. We struggle to be a witness for Christ. He calls us in the middle of life, in the very middle. Those dinner conversations with your kids where you're like, man, that was a terrible family dinner. What in the world is happening? He calls us in those moments when we're just too tired to even really communicate very well as husbands and wives. He calls us in times when we just don't feel like reaching out to that person that is difficult for us. In those times, in those moments, as a scattered people, God gives us grace. Now, you may be thinking, okay, sure, Corey. I hear what you're saying, and I can see as somebody called to vocational Christian ministry that you would, um, you would need to see life that way. You need to see life through the standpoint of, okay, um, I need to trust Jesus completely even when my life is being turned upside down. I mean, you were a missionary, now you're a pastor, and you're just kind of called in a different way than maybe most people are to trust God. Well, actually, the interesting thing about this passage is that if you look at verse 1, it says, all except the apostles were scattered. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. It says everyone else, the other five or 10,000 Christians at the time, they were the ones who got scattered because of the name of Jesus. The apostles would certainly face horrible situations in their lives and have to give up everything for Christ. So what do all except the apostles do when they go? It says in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the gospel wherever they went. They boldly preached the gospel of Jesus when they were being scattered. It's not the ministers, it's not the, the lead pastors, it's all of us. We are all called, this is the gospel. Let me tell you, your neighbors and nations do not want to hear that you've figured everything out in life. They do not want to hear that. That is not the gospel and that is not good news. Good news is you're a broken person and you have a particular story where Jesus has met you in a unique way and you have a story to tell to your neighbor and that's what they want to hear. If you really get to know your neighbors, the last thing they want to hear from you, even though we live in Cary and everybody acts like they have it all together, maybe not in a pandemic, but even still, sometimes I see it. People don't want to hear that. People want to hear Jesus. They want to hear good news. They want to hear, I've got everything figured out. It's not just in the well-ordered times that we're called to minister. It's in all times, in all circumstances. But the big underlying question of this text is this. How is this kind of life possible? And how can we possibly live this way? How could they, in the midst of all of this incredible suffering, this incredible sadness, when they're losing everything for Christ, how can they go then be ministers of the gospel? They weren't perfect. They were sinners like you and me. Sometimes we can over, we can over uh, spiritualize these early Christians as if they were just totally different from you and me. No, they weren't. They had kids. Their kids were in schools. They had friends. They had jobs. They were regular people. And yet they had leveraged everything on Jesus Christ. They had committed everything to him. They knew and they believed the gospel. I mean, it's, it's actually not a complicated answer. They actually believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus loved them. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They believed that Jesus loved them. They believed he was sovereign. 
and they trusted Jesus in the midst of these circumstances because they really believed in the cross and the resurrection and they believed, therefore, that it is through the crucifixion where we come to a resurrection. You cannot get to resurrection without crucifixion. You cannot get to new life without dying to yourself. You must die to self. You must surrender your life to Christ in order to possibly live like this, in order to possibly let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, as Martin Luther said, in a mighty fortress. Jesus himself set the example for us. That's what I'm trying to say. This is basic Christianity. Jesus set the example. He had disadvantaged himself so that we could be advantaged. The one who had everything, what happened? He came to earth and was utterly scattered, broken apart, totally on a cross, gave up everything for you and for me so that, what? So that we could have life in his name. This is Christianity. It is giving up everything for the Lord. If he brings blessing if he, if he brings good times, bad times, financial prosperity, or the lowest point, if we know what's going if to we, if we if we feel very confident about tomorrow, or we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, he's still the Lord, and he leads us through all of these times and seasons. So we have to serve the Lord. We're called to serve the Lord when we are scattered. The grace of Jesus comes in the real world to real people the real world to real people. So we serve when we're scattered, and we also serve in our Samaria. We serve in our Samaria. This is verses 5 through 8 and 14 through 17. So they weren't scattered into just any old place. Okay, They were scattered into Samaria. What's so significant about Samaria? Well, if you've studied this at all, you know that Jews and Samaritans literally could not stand each other. Uh, Jews were raised... From, from childbirth to look down on Samaritans. They believed they were half-breeds. This is Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles and other local people, and they, they were just trained from day one ethnically to look down. They were trained to look down morally on them as if they were less than because they didn't follow the law. They didn't follow the ceremonial law. In every way, the, Jew, the Jewish mind was trained to look down on Samaritans. It happened to be exactly the area they didn't want to go to. And so when Jesus included this in Acts 1.8 and said, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, and then Samaria and the ends of the earth, you have to believe they were thinking, well, okay, cool. I mean, but ultimately it's the ends of the earth and that's really exciting. But they had to go through Samaria. First of all, geographically they had to go through Samaria to get to the ends of the earth. They could not extend the gospel to the world if they didn't go through Samaria. It just simply had to happen. But also... It had to happen for the gospel to show that the gospel was for people, for every people, from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. For the gospel to make real geographical and cultural progress, it had to cross the Jewish-Samaritan divide. And so some were scattered, including Philip, and he went down into Samaria, verse 5. Before we get there, I want to remind you of who Philip was. He was one of the first seven deacons chosen for his faith and his fullness of the Holy Spirit. He and Stephen, who was just stoned, were chosen and five other men. These are Hellenistic 
uh, leaders. That means that they were Jews, but they, had, they were cosmopolitan. They were aware of culture. They had lived outside, and they knew something about the outside world. They, weren't, they hadn't just been confined to life in Jerusalem. So how does Philip share the gospel in Samaria? Well, he does tell them the good news of the gospel, but I want to show you how he does this. He does this like a deacon. He starts with, with good works. He starts with, with praying for them and seeing God work in healing ways among them. It says in verse 6, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they paid close attention to what he said. So he was speaking, but what really got their attention was that he loved them, that he touched them, that he was bringing a new reality with him that they needed to pay attention to. So why would this have been particularly important for the Samaritans? Well, they had been interacting their whole life. They had been preached at their whole life by religious Jewish fundamentalists. The only interactions they'd had with Jews were Jews who were calling them out and telling them how they just did not measure up to the ceremonial law. That was it. Every time a Samaritan interacted with a Jew, they were less than. They were half-breeds. They were not worthy to be God's people. And so you see him coming in not just with words, but also with deeds, and it melted their hearts. As the name of Jesus comes in with mercy and kindness, it gains a gospel hearing. And look at this in verses 6 through 8, these deeds of mercy. I love this verse in verse 8. The deeds of mercy combined with the gospel hearing, it led to much joy in that city. I want you to, I want you to imagine this. Okay, they had been in Jerusalem, their hometown. They had lost everything. Everything, utterly everything. And they had been pushed into the region, the very region that was the, the, the other side of the tracks, the place your daddy told you to never go, the place that you were never supposed to end up if you wanted to have real estate that ever appreciated in value. To be around people that frankly worried you and you didn't want your kids to be friends with them. And they went there, and what happened? The gospel brought much joy to that city. So here they are, giving up everything, dying to themselves, and so that others will experience resurrection life. And you know what? I bet, I bet the much joy wasn't just for the Samaritans. The much joy was for Philip and the other believers as well as they saw the gospel go forward. So before we get into um, application, what we can learn about this at Trinity Park, I want to look at verses 14 through 17 because this is a really important point. Uh, Theologically, this has caused a lot of confusion for people. But as we read here, it looks like, and it is the fact that these people believed in Jesus and were true Christians before they received the Holy Spirit. And so there's been uh, all kinds of questions about that have been asked theologically, like, is it possible to receive Jesus and not receive the Holy Spirit fully based on this passage? It's a really important uh, aspect to understand. Well, it's absolutely a unique situation because we read in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, for example, where Paul writes, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. There are other biblical passages as well that that tell us that when you receive Jesus, you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit completely as much as you're ever going to have him. You are 
baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so what's going on here in Acts chapter 8? Why is this the case? Well, I think God wanted to send a very unique message at this time in history and in this moment geographically and culturally. He wanted Peter and John to come down, the apostles, and he wanted them to lay hands on these people, these first people who mainly were not Jewish. They were a different people group. And God wanted the world to know and the church to know for all of history that when the Jews received the Holy Spirit, the apostles laid their hands on him, and that, that's how it worked in Pentecost. God fell on them, and the apostles experienced. And, and so you have this, this God moving down upon the church and baptizing them, the Jews at that time. And then as you get into Samaria, it's really important that everyone knows that the Holy Spirit, the very same Holy Spirit, the very same Holy Spirit that, the, that had empowered the apostles is now coming on another people group, on another culture, so that no one could ever be able to say that that was something that was unique to the Jews. This is, this is crossing a cultural barrier for the very first time. And so there's a unique moment in time where we need to see that this is the very same empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there was a danger that there would not be equality among cultures and people groups in the church. There was a danger if they didn't have, uh, if they had some kind of a different experience that wasn't analogous to the, the Jews, that there could be some question about, are there, are there different types of, of different subgroups and first-class citizens and second-class citizens in the church of Jesus? And the answer emphatically is no. That the gospel by its very nature transcends cultural barriers, just like this one. And also, it's important with regard, again, to the theme verse of Acts, Acts 1.8, this mandate that Jesus gives them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the world needs to know that step three of the fulfillment of Acts 1-8 is completed. It is emphatically completed. Everybody needs to know in QLED 8K clarity that this moment has occurred. Jesus tells the truth. The gospel does go forth. It's going to go forth in ways that we didn't anticipate, but God is going to extend his gospel ultimately to the ends of the earth. So the question for us then we need to ask ourselves is, what then is our Samaria? What is our Samaria? Who are the people we have the hardest time loving? Who are the people we have the easiest time disliking? It's a question that's much less monolithic for us than it was for the Jewish-Samaritan divide. For us, we're divided up among all kinds of different situations, cultural groups, political groups, social groups, economic groups. Uh, we live in a much more multifaceted society in this way than they did. So in this next section, I'm going to quote myself from 2011. Okay? I preached on this passage at Trinity Park in 2011. I don't want you to think that anything I'm saying here has to do with me being woke in the last year. Okay? This is a literal quote. In fact, I've actually changed, all I've done is kind of, I've changed a few words that I know would, might be too offensive for you to read just because of our cultural moment. So I've, I have toned it down slightly, but I just want you to hear what, what this passage means and what I said it meant 10 years ago. Okay? Quoting myself, plagiarizing myself from 10 years ago. 
What about the division between more educated and less educated, or between the put together and the poor? Do you have a difficult time loving the uneducated or loving the marginalized? Do you get frustrated that in some cases the poor have not taken advantage of the good opportunities they've been given? If you're honest, has the fact that you are well-educated and well-off made you a bit pretentious and judgmental of people who haven't been as responsible as you have been? I continue on quoting myself. There are many other possibilities for who your Samaria might be depending on your age and experience. It could be that you have a difficult time loving Democrats if you're a Republican or loving Republicans if you're a Democrat. Republicans and Democrats both need the gospel massively and I think that much is obvious right now. Okay? These are some of the divides. Who is your Samaria? Who do you have a hard time loving? And it may not be a group of people, okay? You know, I know the whole identity politics conversation, all that. It may not be, but it may be, okay? It may be. And you need to be honest with yourself. That could be your Samaria. We are called to love. But it may not be a group of people that's your Samaria. It could be one person who is your Samaria. It could be one specific person. When I say, who do you struggle to love, who comes to your mind first? It could be a parent. It could be a sibling. It could be another member of this church. It could be someone at work. Who is your Samaria? Who do you have a difficult time loving? You need to identify that person or that group of people you struggle to love, and then you need to ask the follow-up question, how do I follow Jesus into my Samaria? Let me suggest to you in the way of Philip that your Samaria first starts, loving your Samaria first starts with your actions more than your words, more than likely. The old adage is true. People don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. And I think that's particularly appropriate for carry people. People don't want to hear how much you know. They don't. They want to know that you care. Do you love people? Can you love those people that, that is, you identify as your Samaria? Or are you just trying to fill their inbox up there? You're just trying to fill their, the conversation up with how much you know in those conversations. Can you listen to them? Can you love them? This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the cross. But the biggest question is, how in the world are you going to actually be able to love your Samaria? How in the world is that possible? You can't just decide, oh, that was a nice sermon. That's, that's apparently true from the text. I think I'll just go love the people that I find the most impossible to love in my life. Thanks for the tip. That's not going to work out for you or for me. You're going to be grinding your teeth the whole time, inwardly bristling. You will just become a different version of a hypocrite. So how can you actually begin to love people who you find to be unlovable? How can you love your enemies the way Philip did in the way of Jesus? Well, you have to recognize that the gospel of grace comes to you and it comes to me. It comes regardless of race. It comes regardless of color. It comes regardless of economics. It comes regardless of education. It comes regardless of personality difference. It comes regardless of the level of sin and depravity, the level of arrogance, 
the level of self-deprecation. It comes to all of us. It came to you. So how can you love your enemies? If you have a problem with grace, then you have a problem with God. If you have a problem with grace and you have a problem with God, and you need to go back and ask the question, what is the gospel for me? Do you believe that when Jesus left heaven to come to earth, he came because he saw something, something just really remarkable about you? He saw something like, you know, this would be a good investment of my time. This guy, I mean, he's, 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 he's sort of good looking. Or this lady, he's good looking. He's kind of got it all together. He's generally smart. You know what? I think if I just kind of invest a little bit in this person, they could really make something of themselves. Is that your view of the gospel? No, the gospel is that when Jesus came for us, he came for us when we were his enemies. He came for us in our depravity. He came for us seeing all of the depth of the brokenness of the sin that honestly disgusted him. He was utterly disgusted by the sin. He's holy, 100%. He saw the sin that you and I were living out and wreaking havoc on his good and beautiful creation, and he came for you. He came for you there. He came for you, and he restored you and renewed you and loved you and brought you into his kingdom. He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light, and he loved you when you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And so we need to understand the gospel that Jesus loved me of all people, me. So then, what is grace? If I have a problem with grace, I have a problem with God. But if I love grace and I adore grace, then I am becoming like God. I can become like God in my love for other people. So I want you to think about who is in your Samaria. I want you to think about them. I want you to imagine them right now. And then I want you to see your face in them. Your face, who is undeserving of love, undeserving of God's goodness and his kindness and his mercy. And Jesus came for you. And it can melt your heart because you were loved even when you were an enemy of God. He was crushed for you so that you could exchange your sin for his life. This is Jesus in our place. This is the gospel of grace. So serving in the kingdom of God will mean facing our prejudices, our relationships. You can't say, I'm sorry, Corey. What you're saying here is just too hard. I'm sorry, that's not a good answer. It's not a Christian answer. It's not too hard. It is, you can't do it on your own, but you don't get to play that card. You are called to love your enemies. You are called to love people that you don't like. This is Christianity. This is disadvantaging ourselves to advantage others. You are not called to hang on to all of your personal rights. You say, Corey, we're in a pandemic. This is really hard. It is hard. It is hard. But we look at the gospel momentum. We look at what Jesus does. The gospel advances through scattered people who are scattered into their Samaria who hold on to Christ, not on to their personal rights. They hold on to the gospel and they give up themselves for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is the call of Jesus Christ on our lives. I want to encourage you, though, as you enter into your Samaria, I want you to encourage you to be very patient. Your Samaria doesn't want to hear how smart you are. They don't want to hear how you've got it all figured out. They don't want to hear 
any of that. They just want you to love them. They just want you to sit with them, and they want you to be patient with them and wait with them so that they might see Jesus. If they see you sacrificing yourself for them, eventually you might gain a gospel hearing, and then you can share the good news of the gospel as well. How in the world can you be faithful to serve Jesus like the, uh, like the early believers did? Well, I said earlier, and I'll conclude with this, I said earlier that Jesus loved you when you were his enemy. When you were far off, he brought you in. But let me tell you how he looks at you now. This is from C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. Lewis says this about why it's ultimately worth it to follow Jesus in life and death. He says, to please God... To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work. Or a father and a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. You see, when Jesus looked down on those Christians in Acts 8 as they were scattered in their Samaria, as he looks down on us in COVID-19, as we're scattered as a church and we're seeking to love those people that are difficult for us, he delights in us. He delights in us. He loves us much more than I delight in my children, much more than you delight in your children. He delights in you. He loves you. And let that love compel you and hold on to you when you're scattered and when you find yourself in your Samaria, knowing that the Lord God Almighty loves you and holds on to you. Let's pray. Lord God, would you help us, Jesus, as Drew prayed, Lord, I need you. Lord, we, we need you. We need you individually. We need you as a church. Lord, we need you in our emotions. We need you in our relationships. We need you psychologically. We need you financially. We need you culturally. We need you in every aspect of our being. Oh God, how we need you. Lord, we are not even yet aware, fully aware of how much we need you. Lord, the truth is it, it is, goes far beyond what we have already owned up to. Lord, we are utterly dependent on you. We thank you that you love us and we do pray that you would enable us in this moment to hold on to you, to hold on to your great love for us, the great truths of the gospel, even as we're scattered and even as we are in our Samaria. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Join with us as we close in song, as we sing worthy of every song we could ever sing. And this song speaks of the exact progression that Corey just spoke of, which is starting with God's goodness and his love and it's that that leads us out to love those around us so join with me as we sing
Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Sing holy. There is no one like you. There is no beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever live. We live for you. We live for you, Jesus. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Sing holy. And holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your arms and lead me in your love to those around. Sing, I will build, and I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation, and I will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be, I will build. song we could ever sing and worthy of all the praise we could ever bring and worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you 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 Amen. Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ.
The love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours today, world without end. Amen. Go in peace.